Uh, okay. How do you want to? How do you want to get here? <sighs> I mean, I like your kind of overall talking points. I think we're good. Really, it's just a go for it. Things that you personally not DIY. Things you would DIY. <laughs> tools you might need. I actually walked around my house and was trying to figure out like what tools I use, what tools I actually use because I have a ton of tools. Don't buy some. Okay. So so. Caitlin, why do you DIY? Are we starting? We've been starting. <laughs> We've been starting. Okay. This is the Keeping Room Podcast. I'm Caitlin, an architect, old house nerd, and DIY enabler. And I'm Jake, an old house lover and DIY enthusiast. This is a space for us to share why we love old houses, what they can teach us, and how you can apply those lessons to your home. Welcome to The Keeping Room. So, I mean, one of the biggest reasons to DIY is you have the control over it. If you're, you know detail-oriented, and you don't really want to let other people do work for you, (laughs) Um, DIY is a great avenue to go down to. We've said this before. You'll end up learning a lot of new skills, which is really fun. But also, if you do something and then you learn better or you mess it up, you're going to hate – like, you're just going to know it and kick yourself all the time. So, like, be forewarned. (laughs) That is a consequence of DIY sometimes. Do it, and then you learn a better way to do it, and you're like, man, I wish I'd done it that way. Um, Also, often we can't find the craftsman to do some of the stuff. So we've talked about Liz a bunch. We're going to throw her under the bus again. (laughs) She actually talked to her. I talked to her the other day. She's like, I was laughing so hard when you came across me. So, um. There is no – she has a terrazzo floor in her bathroom. Mm-hmm. Terrazzo is a very specialized thing. There's no one here that does terrazzo. Like, I can't – I couldn't even do it in a new house if I wanted to. Like, yeah. I can't hire someone to come and do a terrazzo floor. So It's like that page has been ripped out of the yellow page. Right. It doesn't exist. So, sh- if she wanted to restore it, she taught herself how. She also taught herself how to make terrazzo and made terrazzo tiles – to go around the base of the bathroom. In that same vein, I I feel like most of the people that we follow along for our DIY old house advice are self-taught. Like they got into this world because they couldn't find somebody to do the things or because they couldn't afford what the person wanted to do. And so they dipped their toe into that pool. And some people have been able to make entire careers out of it. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there is a not clear, like, a DIY to actually being a preservation trades professional line. Like, it exists. Yes. There's, I mean, there's so many window restoration people that started that way. In fact, we have one in town. Um, so I think it's it's a good way to kind of, like, dip your toe in. And there's a lot of things, especially in old houses, that people just don't do anymore in plaster. Yeah. Definitely one of those. If you happen to be 
in the Northeast or in an area where there's a lot of plaster, you might have some people who actually do real lime plaster that you could hire to do that work for you. They're true craftsmen. They are going to be expensive. And sometimes if you're just trying to crack, patch a crack in the wall, you don't need the true craftsman to come and do it. And it is a thing that while it is a skilled trade, it does take knowledge to be able to do it. It's not super, super hard. Physically demanding if you're doing it for a profession, but right. if you're just doing it for yourself, you do one room, it's real painful, you forget about it, and you go on with your life. <laughs> well, we've talked we've talked a lot about, you know, what are things to do and like why we DIY. We've spent I feel like we spent a whole episode talking about that. But I don't remember what episode that was, but I know it has come up. I mean, it's come up lots. I think we talked a lot about when to DIY or what to DIY, why DIY in in episode three. And so we've we've like established that foundation of like why it is better or not why it is better, but why a lot of us choose to DIY. Right. And so today we want to focus on like what are what are some of the guidelines that you can kind of have in your head for when to draw those boundaries? Right. Because we, admittedly, there are upsides to it. Um, financial, time, being able to find the person. And one thing you haven't mentioned is like just the personal satisfaction that you feel. Very much. And like ownership of your home and pride in completing tasks and like bringing people over to show it off and all that stuff. Right. Um, so... Let's start this episode talking about um, what are some things you would not DIY? What's off limits? Well, so like personally, part of the reason some of these things might be physical limitations. I am not good with heights. I don't want to climb on a roof. Okay. I'm not going to do roofing ever. Could I do it? Maybe. Do I want to? Hell no. (laughs) Am I going to paint up high? Like, I'll get up on a ladder and paint a ceiling, right? Inside heights are fine. (laughs) Something about the out of doors. I'm not, I mean, you know, I will climb on my roof to check something, but I couldn't, like, yeah. And then there's, like, the physical strength limitation, too. Like, I don't have the physical strength to do significant masonry work. Solid. Like, that takes a good amount of muscle to move those giant, you know, if you're, especially if you're doing like CMU blocks, those yeah. blocks are heavy and that's just very physically demanding. And I uh, have to work out a lot more. <laughs> last summer I put in a patio, a stone patio, and that involved breaking up the existing concrete, hauling it off, hauling in a bunch of sand and then actually laying the stone. So it was a really physically demanding task and I was up to it. But good lord, it hurt. Oh, yeah. No, I did a patio and I will never do it again. Same thing. <laughs> like, I thought, you know, this is easy. I'm just moving these one, you know, 12 by 12 blocks and sending them. I was, you know, I hurt so much. I was on my knees. I had knee pads. But as much as I was on my knees, my knees actually peeled like I'd sunburned them. It was crazy. Ooh. Like, the skin just came off. You're so delicate. (laughs) It hurt. And every, like, I had muscles hurt that I didn't know existed. Um, So you just, you really wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. So, okay, that's, this is a broad way of talking about things that are outside of your 
safety limitations or things that are outside of your physical limitations. Right. So things where there is high potential for danger. Falling off a roof. Falling off a roof really high. Now, there are ways to do that safely. And there are things that you can do comfortably at that height. Like I'm really comfortable or I have been comfortable cleaning out gutters, which you basically getting on the roof for. Um, And I can, I'm happy cleaning out my gutters. I'm happy like checking in on them, but I'm not trying to actually rip the entire roof covering off and doing that. Yeah. I may, I might replace a shingle. Um, but much beyond that, I'm right. like, nah, not anymore. Well, and there's some things, there's something special. You have a tiled roof. So now there's I have some things roof. where you really don't want to walk on it unless you know how. Like, there's a specific yeah. way to walk on it. And I genuinely don't know how you're supposed to walk on a tile roof. Me neither. <laughs> uh, this roof is also a lot higher than the last one. So <laughs> it's real scary. Not, not trying to get up there. Um, <laughs> but what are some other, other safety red flags? So, Safety-wise, electrical can be really scary for people. There are actually local codes where you're not necessarily allowed to work on your electrical. Okay. Um, so in my parents' area, they can they can do their own electrical work and get it certified and permitted. In Tulsa, that's not a thing. Oh, okay. Um, now what I tackle changing a light fixture or a switch or you know those are small. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, stay focused. I, we're, we're drawing lines. I know. Okay. So, things that are big electrical work, things that could be very dangerous, like running a new um, service to your house, yeah. dealing with that overhead line that comes in from the pole, not touching that. <laughs> uh, things like, uh, taking out low bearing walls or like major demolition that is going to require a lot of like support and things that could potentially damage your structure. Yeah, definitely not something you want to get into DIY without very specialized tools and knowledge. (laughs) Certain TV networks make it seem really easy. You just take the sledgehammer to the wall and and life is grand. And then sometime later you find out that you need a structural beam. Uh, But it's best to get to that point before you actually start taking things out so your house doesn't fall down. Yeah. And then personally, like, that's not something I'm physically capable of. Like, I'm not going to lift a steel beam into place. No. I don't have the tools to lift a steel beam into place. I don't see any reason to own the tools to have to steal me into place. So that's a that's another good one. Um, specialized or expensive equipment. You know, some DIY projects, the barrier to entry is so high. Yeah. Like because you need uh you you and I have talked about uh like custom moldings and like m- making really specific things to match what's in your house. Yeah. There is a machine that I can purchase and I can have the knives cut to mill my own molding. Yeah. But I'm not going to. When that machine is not crazy expensive. Not inexpensive. So unless you're going to do it like professionally, because, you know, you're even, it's very, there is a cost savings point, like a break even where the tool costs way more than you're ever going to get out of it and just pay the guy who already owns the tool to do it for you. Yeah. You've also kind of uh, teased into local cord, local codes and ordinances. Yes. Um, yeah. So you can probably speak to some of the things that are off limits in Tulsa. I mean, not exactly. Something, it just depends on what you can get permitted or if you're going to get it permitted. So 
in it, again, you're going to want to check on your local area and what's allowed. I know that you're not allowed to do your own electrical work in Tulsa. You're not technically allowed to do your own plumbing work either. Mm. Those things need to be okay. done by a licensed professional. Um, not going to say that a ton of people don't just right. do it. <laughs> it. And it depends on the inspector sometimes too. So with my parents where they were doing like, cause they built an addition on their house. Right. Okay. So they did their own electrical and they did a good amount of their own plumbing. Hmm. And basically you have to read the codes. You have to meet the codes and then come and the inspector comes out and he inspects it and says, this meets code, but you got to fix this. And then you have to fix that thing to pass the inspection, yeah. which is the same thing that a licensed professional would do, but you're taking on all the risk right. of that. So, and it's a lot of specialized knowledge to memorize those codes. I would not know how to run a whole house electric. That's not a thing that I would know how to do. Absolutely not. Like, Turns out those are specialized careers and you pay those tradesmen handsomely for what they do because of the amount of detail and the variety of information that they have to control and like be ready to just enact in real life. Yeah. And even because architects are typically generalists, like I have to know of these codes, but I could not tell you the ins and outs of the national electric code. Like yeah, I can go read the code and figure it out. But, like, I don't have to memorize that. Right. I just have to say, hey, electrician, you have to meet this code and know where I want them to put outlets in a plan, basically. <laughs> uh, so that's a good transition to another point that we outlined. Um, things that are going to take too long to master. Yeah. Like, you can – the electrical code, plumbing code – can be read and internalized and you can you can master that but it's a lot to master there's a, a depth of that material that's really hard to get a command of to yeah. to like function well and i mean you have to value your own time at something like you might be saving money in the end yeah but the amount of time that you spent learning to do the thing at some point Becomes a burden. Becomes a burden. It's not worth it. Like, if I have to spend a thousand hours learning how to do this, and then it only takes me 10 hours to do it, just pay the guy to do it <laughs> for the 10 hours, and you save the thousand hours of learning that you're never going to apply again in yeah. your life. <laughs> so things that take a long time to master and things that are one-off. Right. Like, if you own plaster walls and they crack – Learning to patch that plaster is probably a good value because you will likely have to patch something else. Yeah. Whether it be another crack or uh, somebody hits a wall and it chips, like eventually there will be other avenues to learn that skill. Um, but running a full electrical service start to finish in a new edition or whatever else is probably beyond what you're going to need to use in the future. Yeah, you're not ever... I mean, unless you're going to go into a career of actually building houses, it's unlikely that you're ever going to do that again. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Or need to know that skill. Or by the time you get around to doing it again, you'll have forgotten it all or have changed. Because <laughs> those things do get updated. And the folks that are licensed, like, do have to keep up with those updates. Yeah. So they, they have that most up-to-date information. They know what those best practices are. And the way we've talked about this feels like those folks have just memorized a book and are putting its learning into practice. No, they actually know tons of shortcuts and like practical ways to apply that knowledge 
in like skillful, valuable applications in your home. Yeah. So it is it is much more than just what that book can teach you. Well, and I mean, reading, if you've ever read a code book. They're dry. They're dry. They're confusing because very often they, and I just did this today, refer to other sections or little points or there's all these little loopholes and you just have to like be really careful as you're reading through it. And if you do that over and over and over and over again as a professional, you know those loopholes, so you don't even have to go look it up. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't recommend having to get into significant code review. <laughs> um, one thing you listed on in our show notes uh, that you would not take on is pouring concrete. Yeah. Um, which, growing up, I can't remember how many times like we would go and help a neighbor pour a concrete slab. But it it was usually for like a shop or uh, like a driveway situation. Um, so what is your what is your hesitation with concrete? So I mean, this is really just like emotional trauma scarred <laughs> from a previous experience with concrete. Um, when I was an intern in college, I worked at a firm in South Carolina, and we did this like. It was some kind of a, a fundraiser or just like a community project or something. So we had designed this thing for a kid's playground on at a school in Charleston. And so we went and poured this concrete for the – it was like a solar system or whatever. Okay. And we were pouring basically big planets. So we were trying to get this dome. So we got this really low slump concrete. So it was very heavy and very thick and very hard to work with so that we could kind of make these like – Shape it. Yeah, egg-shaped things. And it was 95 degrees and 100% humidity. And, you know, concrete as it cures gives off heat. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're baking from the concrete. Your It was awful. So I'll never do it again. It hurt a lot. Um, and, it, I mean, there's – yeah, I might do a little pad or whatever. But, like, big, big amounts of concrete – um, no. Anywhere where I have to do, like, significant reinforcing, like, footings or whatever, that's another one where there's specialized knowledge because you have to know how to set the rebar properly and, like, all of that. And then, you know, I know someone else can do it faster and better than I could. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm contemplating, like, putting a small shed in the backyard for, like, a lawnmower. And I can do that, right? Yeah. Like, I feel capable that I can mix up some bags of quickcrete and make that happen. Um, but I also need to resurface my driveway. And I'm not doing that. No, that's – I mean, because that's a big area, right? So yeah. uh, there's a certain point where, like, you need a bigger crew than just yourself mm-hmm. or two people. And again, might. the specialized materials to, like, scree it, to float it, to, like, make that surface actually have the finish yeah. that you want to show off. Yeah. So there's – Again, there's kind of some gray area there. Yeah. There's maybe we would dip our toe into these things. I would pour concrete to set a fence post, but I would not build the foundation of my own home. No, no. Or pour concrete that I ever wanted to see. There's a part of my garage that the previous owners had obviously DIY poured and the floor in there is absolute trash. <laughs> it's just okay. pitted and horrible and it's kind of sad. Not great. But do you park on it? No. Okay. I can't park in my garage, man. Oh, that's just true. It's too small. It's just a glorified shed. There's also a number of objects that occupy that space. Yeah, it's full of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very full of stuff. I mean, so is mine. I'm not really giving you a hard time about no. that. <laughs> I have been slowly working on the organization. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I'll get there eventually. Um, okay, and then the last thing we really have in our notes uh, that you would not recommend DIYing is design. 
And I feel like that's, for a lot of folks, that's like their starting point. I mean, design to a degree. Like, when I say not recommend DIY design, obviously, pick your paint colors, choose your tile, choose your finishes, kind of figure out layouts or whatever. But what I'm thinking about is like, one, a designer has some skilled knowledge outside of what you might have to bounce ideas off of. So like you might get it in your head that you want it to be this, but they can make you step outside yourself and see something else. Um, And the other thing is like, if you're doing an addition on your home or doing any kind of structural work or something where like you're trying to mesh an addition to the existing house, um, the roof forms and whatnot, a skilled designer is going to have better ideas for how to do that than you ever would because you've been doing it forever. (laughs) I have found that professional designers are much better at iteration. Yeah. And it might take me three weeks to come up with like the look of a change to the exterior. And it takes my mind that long to like form those visuals and figure out like how to put it together. And I can ask you a question and you can immediately visualize that and then bring up changes to that design idea in essentially real time, right? Like in conversation. Yeah. And I can track with you in that conversation, but getting to the point where you can have those ideas takes me so much longer. (laughs) So again, it's like, you have to value your own time at something. Yeah. Appreciate the skill set and knowledge that others can bring and experience that others can bring to what's going on. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have another crazy old house architect in your area. In your pocket. In your pocket. Um, you know, I, this is all I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's all I do. I'm obsessed with houses. I dream about houses. I wake up and, you know, I drive around and I look at houses and I I pay attention to the details and I think about how that works and then store that knowledge away somewhere in my brain. And then it comes back out when someone asks me, hey, can we do this? It's like, oh yeah, I saw that one time. Or there's a twist on that, you know? So <laughs> it's one of those. And if that's not all you do with your time, then you You're might not, not have all of that stuff in yeah. your head. I can't remember my birthday some days because <laughs> this, all this other stuff is in there. <laughs> Uh, you know. To that end, the variety of examples that you can pull from are going to be larger than anything that I can ever put on a Pinterest board. Right. Yeah. Like right. Your your sample source or your reference library is going to be much larger than what I can pull together as a casual homeowner. Yeah. I mean, you can spend 20 years doing it if you want to, but... Yeah. <laughs> but yes, that's... And again... Me, but there are also other designers that are very, very talented, and that's that is what we do. I think people don't understand what architects do a lot. Very often, people don't get it, and there's a difference between an architect because we're licensed. It's kind of like a doctor, or you know, an LPN or a healthcare professional. Okay, okay. <laughs> so because we're licensed, we carry a certain amount of liability, basically, for everything we do. Having a license doesn't make you a better designer. Fair. But it does come with that assurance of liability, essentially, um, that we are we have some standard of care. Good way to look at some it. Some other designers may or may not. So. <laughs> So now that we know or we've talked about some things that would be off limits, things that we're afraid to dip our toe into or should at least 
strongly be cautious yeah. <laughs> of dipping our toe into. Um, what are some prime targets? What are some go-ahead, pretty clear green flag to DIY? I mean, paint, obviously. Painting an exterior, sometimes that's way faster to hire someone, but you are going to probably do a better job than anyone you can hire mm-hmm. uh, as long as you're in for how much longer it's going to take you to do that. Right. And again, this comes with the caveat of safety because there's heights. So, you know, if you're going to have to paint up high, there are tools that you can rent to help you, like lifts. Yeah. Um, I'm In hindsight, I might have done that, but also, like, painting my house was super painful. I painted the exterior <laughs> of my house, and I brush painted it. I did not spray it. And it took you how long? Two and a half years, but again, we stopped in the yes, middle. Yes, yes. <laughs> It wasn't two and a half years solid. It was like a season in the spring and then it got too hot, which again, it's May. It got too hot. It's already too hot. What has happened? Um, Warm. It's toasty. (laughs) It's not as bad as it was a couple of weeks ago. And then, you know, we came back to it and finished up the next year. And so, yeah, it's. Um, I took the. The Tulsa Preservation Commission hosted a historic house painting workshop yeah. last year. Um, and we talked a lot about the preparation that needs to go into painting exterior um, woodwork. It was a, a full day long workshop. And we talked probably for like two thirds of the day about preparation and yeah. the value of preparation and and the proper way to prepare your exterior wood surfaces to be painted. Because there's so much that is so important to the final product that you get. And mm-hmm. most folks don't spend that time on preparation. Um, most professionals would just like pressure wash the house to clean it off and then put whatever paint up on there. They may tape stuff off and spray that paint, mm-hmm. which doesn't as here at well, doesn't as here at well as well. Damn it. <laughs> which does not add here as well <laughs> to those services. Um, but when you DIY that you can have, you have that built in quality control. Right. Cause you're the one there and you're going to be the one looking at it every day. When you can spend. So like it's, to do exterior paint, to pay someone to do the kind of job that you might do yourself is going to be very expensive Money. because the prep is like Money. it is key, but it takes a ton of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have had a professional do something between what I did and what a normal painter would do with prep. And it took him probably a good two weeks of prep and then they painted. Maybe it was a week. I don't know. But, you know, we you can find middle grounds. Right. but. Yeah, you're going to have – that's one of those – you could pay someone to do it. It's going to be exorbitantly expensive. That is one where you will make your money back doing it yourself. Kind of same thing goes for the interior paint. True. Interior painters, they're they're expensive to hire. And rolling paint on a wall is probably the easiest and most rewarding thing I have ever done. <laughs> um, because you end up – you know, it's, it's so just – Simple. <laughs> the activity is a progress bar of the task. It's like you see the change. When you get in, to paint, you're almost you're done. That's yeah. how I look at a project. When I get to actually roll paint on the wall, it's like this is the home stretch and I'm going to be done in a day. Um, painting your trim, same thing, like well worth it to do it if you have the skills. There's lots of <laughs> um Techniques you can learn to kind of get that smoother finish with a brush. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's mostly paint that makes that difference. Turns out 
expensive paint is expensive paint does make it easier <laughs> it makes the finish better so sometimes it's worth spending the money on the paint rather than on the labor um i have seen really expensive paint applied by pros very badly and it's frustrating yeah and i have seen um you know really expensive paint applied by amateurs and it's gone very well and it didn't cost them anything because they did it themselves it just cost time so paint is definitely an easy DIY. Yeah. Of course, it's the prep up to it, which sucks, but, you know. Keeping safety in mind and <laughs> reaching all of the places and things and all that stuff. Their stuff. Um, we both said that lights would be a good DIY project. Yeah. Speaking of, I have sitting here in a room where I have replaced the lights. Um, <laughs> we When we first moved into this house... Uh, one of the things that you said was the dramatic improvement that lighting can make in your condition. Yes. Um, so I didn't, it's maybe something I didn't realize in the front of my brain, somewhere in the back of my brain. I know that like turning on lamps makes a room feel cozy, <laughs> but I didn't think about the impact of like changing the overall big light fixture in a room mm -hmm. and how that rolls on down the road. Um, and you know, swapping lights out, potentially even building fixtures can be easy, can be rewarding, can be um, a fun exercise, figuring yeah. out how all those pieces go together. But you do have to be sure that you are using um, actual safe parts and adequate parts for what you're going to be doing and how much current is going to be going through there. So there are some concerns that go with it, but as long as you are making sure your stuff's on the up and up. It's a great project. Yeah. I mean, it's very doable to rewire a light yourself or, you know, those things. Those materi materials are available. It is not a difficult skill, but it is something that takes a little bit of specialized knowledge. So definitely do your research, dig into that, you know, make yeah. sure you know what you're doing. I built my first lamp or wired my first lamp yeah. when I was in like fourth grade. <laughs> it was a 4-H little workshop. We made a a lamp out of a soda can and i'm like okay this is fine basically you just drilled a hole in the top and bottom and we ran a rod through it which the electrical went through building electrical fixtures in second grade fourth grade oh fourth did grade. i say second grade fourth grade <laughs> fourth grade still but, yes you were building electrical fixtures in elementary school yes i mean i think we maybe put a light bulb in a potato at some I, don't I never did that. Electrical fixture. Was wiring electrical in elementary. Um, so it's not I, – I still think about that project and, like, how rewarding it was to take something and make it into something else. Um, and re rewiring a light, re redoing those things isn't that difficult. Um, and it's getting harder and harder to find professionals that can and will do it. I know uh, we had a local hardware store oh, here yeah. in town, and they had all kinds of supplies. It was kind of like a fun wonderland, but you could drop off your mm -hmm. great-grandma's lamp mm -hmm. and then pick it up in two weeks, and it would work like a charm Yeah, and not shock you when you plugged it in anymore. But that shop has since gone out of business. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, we would love for you to leave us a rating or review on the podcast platform of your choice. We really appreciate the support and it helps other people know the show is worth a listen. But, but those, yeah, the places to find that hardware, the places to, with the experts who could like talk you through that process are becoming harder and harder to find. Yeah. And so it is 
a task that more and more people are going to have to DIY if yeah. they want to use those old fixtures and make those things work. Yeah. And, you know, I come from a background. My mom worked in a light store, so we were building lights. I, I think we built a light for my bedroom sometime in high school. So okay. I have built lights before, so it does not scare me. But if electrical worries you, definitely do not tackle it um, without doing the background. And anytime you're changing out a fixture or a switch, um, make sure you turn the power off and get one of those little testy things to make sure that the voltage is actually off because especially in old houses, you'll you flip might, that breaker. You might think that circuit is off, but it might be across two circuits. Yeah. I have that in my dining room. <laughs> Fun times. <laughs> Do not shock yourself. It will hurt. Voltage testers, super worth it. Yeah. And I mean, some electricians tell some really scary stories about knob and tube and people dying. So definitely don't do that. Let's not die. Let's not die. Another favorite DIY of ours is restoring wood windows. Oh, yeah. That's definitely a tackle it yourself thing. And this comes with, there's a later point of tools you might need. Um, take a workshop. Learn how to do it. And then, yeah. then you can do all of your windows. There are there's fantastic resources available online. There's mm -hmm. books. But going to a workshop made it feel so much more approachable for me. Yeah. And I mean, there's case. plenty of content creators on Instagram that show you how yeah. that exists, too. And Stacey Grinsfelder, she's fantastic. She's the window queen. Um, but I don't think she's doing a lot of that right now because I think she's trying to get out of that house. So. <laughs> yeah. Her life seems chaotic. And props oh, to her for still doing this thing. <laughs> We have briefly talked about this as an off-limits thing, but sometimes plumbing is okay to DIY. Yeah, definitely. Um, plumbing is plumbing is not particularly dangerous. The worst you're going to do is flood your house. Like, oh, cool. I mean, you don't want to sign me up. You don't want to do that, but chances are you're going to catch it if it's leaking before it's a real problem. You're not going to kill yourself with water. Not likely. Fair. I hope that you didn't do something where you drowned yourself in bed. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, make sure, I guess, you don't put any wires against plumbing fixtures. That yeah. would be the only way I could think you could kill yourself uh, with plumbing. I get a little bit hesitant about, like, the gases that come through sewer lines and plumbing lines. Drain lines can be more complicated, but it's really just kind of like, again, you probably read the code and understand how things go together. You want to make sure you've got the traps in the right place and... So to the right kind of slope on it. But. To this end, plumbing is a very broad umbrella, <laughs> right? It covers a lot. Yeah, because uh, it also covers gas. Yes. And like you probably shouldn't run your own natural gas lines. Or no. you know what? Maybe you want to. I don't. You take your life into your own hands. <laughs> I feel I feel comfortable running a supply line for a faucet. I think it's pretty easy to put like install a sink. I have replaced a toilet. You know, there's there is tasks under the umbrella of plumbing that I think are are very doable. Uh, replacing a shower head, one of the easiest things and the most instant upgrades to your life Definitely. that you can possibly take on. Uh, does that even really fall? I mean, I guess replacing faucets and toilets and like fixtures yeah. falls under the umbrella of something you would hire a plumber to do, but that is so easy. Yeah. To do yourself for sure, do that. Um, I've replaced my kitchen faucet like three times. So. <laughs> uh, the supply lines to like sinks and toilets, those burst really commonly. Oh, the little 
the ones that you basically just screw on. Yes. Yeah, those are super easy too. I have had to replace the drain assemblies in a couple of the sinks here in this new house. Um, so that is also something that's really easy to do. Seems super scary. Seems complicated. But come to find out, you buy a single kit. It has the instructions inside of it yeah. and all the materials that you need. And so you, it just takes a little bit of time. But I'm serious. If you called a plumber out here, it would be like a hundred, 200 bucks yeah. just to get them across your threshold. Mm-hmm. Plus the materials and the time that it then takes to do the damn installation. Yeah. I actually did pay a plumber to replace my toilet mostly because I just didn't want to mess around with carrying it out. <laughs> and it, they I mean, are big and awkward. There's a point where I need Brian's help and there's some of those like, is this going to be a big fight? Is this going to be a really big headache of a project? Should I just pay someone to do this? <laughs> do I want to expend the relationship capital right, yeah. to, on this DIY project? I, I didn't. So I just paid the plumber <laughs> to do it. But, you know, and he's helped. We we replaced the faucets and the, like the whole riser system on the shower. We have a... Uh, Caitlin has a clawfoot tub. Yeah. Here we go. I can't, can't think of the word. <laughs> I have no words today. And then my dad, kind of a jack of all trades, helped us rerun all of our copper plumbing Ooh. Um, when we first moved in because it was a mix of a bunch of different metals and he's like you're not this isn't good you're not living with this we're going to fix this so he ran new copper we sweated all the lines he taught my husband and my brother to do it and I was off doing other projects I don't know what I was doing this was a very long time ago it was like 10 years <laughs> ago Um, come to find out when we got our water heater replaced mm-hmm. we used the wrong copper plumbing oh <laughs> So that was a specialized knowledge issue that we didn't have about local codes. There are two different thicknesses of copper. You got to use too thin or too thick? We use too thin. Mm. But it's okay. He's Your like, house hasn't flooded yet. No, it has not broken or flooded. And all of our plumbing was like interior. It's not like it's exterior walls going to freeze. And yeah. anyway, if I were going to do plumbing DIY again like that, I would do PEX because PEX is so stupid easy. So easy. Yeah. I actually had this issue this winter. I had a line burst in the wall. It was a PVC line. PVC is pretty easy, too, because it's just glue it together. Um, Adult Legos. Adult Legos. Make sure. My dad says, make sure that the purple pipe dope shows, because that's the point of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, you should see all of it. It does not need to be neat. It should not be neat. And don't be stingy with it, either. Yeah, because they won't believe, you know, if an inspector comes, he won't believe that it's been... Glued together. Glued together properly if you can't see the pipe dope. Anyway, had a line burst, had to run new lines. I I was like, well, I would like to run PEX because it was an inaccessible crawl space and I Mm -hmm. needed to bend it. And I didn't know how to get PVC to do that without tearing out the wall and being a real pain. But I knew PEX would make that turn. But I thought I had to get specialized tools for PEX and it turns out you don't. You just buy the the shark bite connectors Mm -hmm. and it like, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to do this if I have to buy a $150 tool. Well, no, I just bought a $12 connector and it was fine. Turns out. Turns out it was fine. So Under that under that same idea, some plumbing, very doable. Some electrical, easy DIY. Yeah. I don't know how many switches and outlets I have replaced. But for some reason, changing a breaker gives me great pause. <laughs> me too, actually. <laughs> I am on board to flip those things on and off and like deal with their downturn or like the downstream effects. But I'm terrified to touch my main panel. No. And I wouldn't recommend it, honestly. My dad specialized knowledge. We did. Yeah. Don't tell the city. (laughs) 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 But yeah, it's that's a lot. That would be a lot to do. Mm -hmm. Switches, easy. 
you know, you make shut it off at the breaker, you make sure there's no power, and you you know which one's hot and mm-hmm. neutral and do that. Some switches get a little more complicated because you're like, why are there five wires to this switch? Yes. And then either you call an electrician or I call my dad. Figure it out. <laughs> Um, I've also like run new electrical boxes when I knew that there was sufficient current in the circuit there to support an additional one to like make it in a better position or, and those types of things. So again, gray area. Some of those things are doable. Mm -hmm. Some you should maybe think about and at least call for a second opinion. I have on the list of things I need to get done an electrician to come out and do some stuff that one, I just don't want to do in the attic and fixing things and making making sure stuff goes where it belongs. And, you know, I've reached the point where, and this is one of those balance, it's not worth my time (laughs) to relearn to do it or to, you know, be scared that I've done it wrong. So I'm just going to call a pro. (laughs) That works. Um, You put on this list passive floor restoration, and I'm not even sure what that is. (laughs) So educate us all. It's passive floor restoration and also like sanding your floors. Both of those things I would DIY. But passive floor restoration is like the even simpler way to restore your floors. So all you're doing is stripping the finish off, usually with a chemical stripper. I would recommend something like soy gel, which now I think is called blue bear. It's a chemical stripper that's not super toxic. Okay. Um, It won't like burn your face off. It does not smell bad. It's actually made from soybeans. That's why. But it is very effective. So it will take that existing poly finish off. So you do that and then you kind of neutralize it. And I can't remember how you neutralize it. You might a different do, chemical? I think it's just water. If I okay. Be, but I would have to go look it up because there's a very long, if you want to get into it on my Instagram, there's a very long saved reel about passive floor restoration. So you, you remove the stripper. You may do some light sanding yeah. in places, but you really aren't sanding the floor. So you've taken the finish off and then you go back with a new finish. So passive meaning that you are not grinding down a significant amount of the thickness of your floor. I recently just did my kitchen floors, which are trash pine. They're not original. (laughs) And I rented a bigger orbital sander. So it was like four little pads that sanded. That was very easy to run and super, super fast. And it didn't take off. Like, because some of those, like I wouldn't do the, what do they call that? Drum sander? sander? Is it a drum sander? Okay. Like the drum sander where you kind of have to be really careful about about direction and not gouging and all of that. Like that, I know I'm not skilled enough to do that and I did not want to ruin my floors with that i have run one of those before and they are super heavy and super terrifying and then when caitlin was redoing the florida kitchen she called me and she was like do you want to come play with my toy (laughs) i was like yeah yeah so i also sanded on kate caitlin's kitchen floors um and it it was shockingly easy yeah and it it's one of those things it seems like a big scary machine but you were able to get it from a local rental company yeah. at a pretty damn reasonable rate it was cheap i think it was less than a hundred dollars i want to say weekend? yeah i got it because it was like a pick it up on a saturday yeah. and you have it till monday thing it was it was very reasonable and very doable and yeah. i would honestly if you don't want to get into the chemical stripping like that would be a good if you feel like you can yeah. restore your floors i mean it comes with a few issues if you don't have very even floors because it won't like get into any divots in the floor and you have to go back with a hand sander but even still that was fun yeah super doable that's pretty good so you have plaster walls on here yes but also sheetrock walls like sheetrock repair plaster repair that patching wall patching whatever easy super on board may seem scary may be messy super doable 
Yeah. Plaster work is a little bit more advanced and a little bit trickier. Drywall, easy. You can go to Home Depot, buy the premix combo, buy the <gasps> tape, watch a YouTube video and be done with it. Easy. I would not recommend doing that on a plaster wall because the joint compound doesn't really bond to the plaster very well. Okay. Um, there are some other products, which that's our next podcast episode. We will talk all about plaster. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm finally going to tell you what I learned. Um, But yeah, that is a very doable thing for DIY. And if you're going to do sheetrock in a whole room and do joint tape or whatever, like, yeah, maybe it's worth paying someone to do it. But again, you make that gauge. How much work do you want to do? If you're patching a hole, easy. Don't call someone to do that. No, I I have hung sheetrock in half of a room and it is a huge pain in the butt, but it is... It is something that is totally doable. Um, the biggest downside for me was the amount of mess that it made. Oh, yeah. It made and so much dust. I was not prepared for it. <laughs> like, I closed the door, but this dust that you're making is so fine. It just was everywhere in my house for, like, two weeks. Ugh. So, the upside to a professional is that they are better prepared to mitigate those after effects or the, the overall impact of the project. Yeah. When you are just worried about the process and the application, the a professional has the eye to like the larger environmental what's going on. Yeah, they um, come in with like plastic sheets and yeah. things, which you can do yourself. But totally like, can. Knowing, I wasn't ready. Knowing what you're getting into a sheetrock dust, uh, it's the worst. And honestly, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I like plaster because you actually don't have to sand it. Yeah, which is nice. But okay, sanding okay. sanding sheetrock is. Um, I hate it. It's the worst. But um, there's some cool tools that you can get to do that too. I think Alex has like a sure. crazy. Oh yeah, I did get on that. the wall like a giant orbital thing with a vacuum. Those exist, but again, how much are you doing? Do you want to buy the right. expensive tool? Uh, masonry repointing. I think that's a thing that you can do for sure. That's definitely something I would like to learn how to do. I do not know how to do that for your wood sided house. I have masonry down low. I have it around the base. I have those brick columns. I have the oh, fireplace. I forgot about the brick columns. My entire foundation is brick. Ooh, I thought it was cinder block. Uh-uh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, a very small section of it is, but yeah, it's all brick. It's like double thickness brick. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, it's not great. Uh- <laughs> Um, and there's some very specialized things with historic masonry about like mortar and not wanting to use Portland cement because yep. some, you know, it's harder than the historic bricks. We've probably touched that before. Whether it made but it worth- into the cut or not, who knows? <laughs> I think it did. I think it did. Uh, but still worth worth revisiting because right. it's uh, it's one of those things that I've had to hear a bunch of times before it like really sunk in and now I'm starting to notice content that is displayed to me. Did you see that post that went around the other day where it was like just the mortar that was yes! all broken up? Yes. That showed up on one of my Facebook page groups about like I think it was like you should have hired an architect which that's funny. <laughs> um. So the particular photo that we're talking about is the corner of a house uh, and the bricks had disintegrated and, and so, like, there were broken bricks still in place, but there was the lattice work of mortar that was existing in, like, the outline of the structure, and, like, crumbled bits of bricks were almost in place, like, holding the mortar up on the corners and stuff. Yeah. Because of this thing that Caitlin just mentioned, where that they used a newer product with the older brick, 
and it led to the bricks themselves just becoming dust yeah. and like falling apart. Yeah. It's the mortar's harder than the brick and it crumbles the brick essentially through because it water processing. Well, things. water processing and freeze thaw and things move and he's on the outside. Tile is on this list as things that you might want to DIY. You can tile for sure. That was such a can tile. I wouldn't do it again. I did it once and it was really painful. It took way more time than I thought it was going to. I think we were we thought we would be done when I tiled a backsplash in my kitchen. Like it was not a lot of tile. Okay. We thought we were going to be done in a day and it took us like three days Mm -hmm. and it's just it wasn't fun. I wouldn't do it again personally. I'd rather pay a pro to do it. I've I've considered doing tile a few times and it seems so easy in that like you're just taking hard stickers and like putting them in place. <laughs> but the difference between a really good tile job and an okay tile job will haunt you forever. Yeah, it really will. And you don't want to you don't want your house to be your learning curve because no. that bad tile will haunt you forever. And yeah. it does. My kitchen haunts me because I listened to my mother when she told me that I needed to use spacers and I told her, no, I don't with this tile. And so now I have bigger ground joints that I would like. And it haunts me. Yeah. It haunts me. And like the <laughs> the process to redo that is arduous. Well, and I, yeah, it'd be a pain. Yeah. I'm not doing it. Not doing it again. So it remains with larger grout lines than I would like. And to wrap up our list of good things to DIY, uh, stripping paint. It's kind of, we started this list with applying paint. So (laughs) taking paint off is also super doable. Um, Caitlin's mentioned uh, some chemicals for like stripping hardwood floors. Mm -hmm. There are chemical strippers, uh, but there's also a nifty way to strip paint off of hardware. Do you want to tell that fun story? Oh, the crock pot. Yeah. So if you have hardware that has a bunch of paint on it, which if you have an old house, chances are somebody's painted on your hardware, take it off, put it in a crock pot with... I don't think that I put anything in there. It's just wait, don't heard- don't use this crock pot for food ever again. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is the other caveat. You have not a shop even- crock pot now. Yes, I have a shop crock pot. Do not use this hardware crock pot for food. So you put it in the crock pot for a while, a couple like a of day. hours. I think it was a day. I don't remember. And I've heard you put just a little bit of Dawn dish soap. Oh, it was dish soap. Okay, a little bit of dish soap. Sometimes I've seen baking soda and the basically takes the paint off of the metal hardware, cooks it off, take it out. It's hardware soup. And you kind of take a brass brush and brush whatever paint's left off and polish it up if you want to put it back. And it looks gorgeous. Yeah. It's one of the easiest things you can do with hardware. And it's just, yeah, wonderful. Okay, so we've talked about some projects that might be good to take on and and things that maybe you want to tackle, sink your teeth into, but now we want to talk about some of the things that will help you make that a reality. Yeah. And I think our first guess or our first <laughs> item on the list, maybe it's because we are millennials, is the internet. <laughs> I read that in your notes the other day and I, I just laughed laughed out loud I also been there like the internet yeah that's pretty obvious that is a tool you want and will need <laughs> but there's a, so i typed that bullet in the show notes and it does just say the internet everything else has almost a paragraph of material behind it oh because i wrote the notes. but it's just <laughs> the internet um but there are so many fun little corners of the internet that have everything from like your grandpa's next door neighbor filming his 80 year old self step by step repairing a wooden window that you can learn from. There are articles that read through that 
go through step by step. Yeah. All of or a lot of the materials you might need that you may not be able to find locally or especially certainly not in a big box hardware store. Oh, yeah. We talk a lot about Instagram. We spend a lot of time there. I'm also a big Reddit fan. There's a ton of folks who are doing work. They're doing DIY work. And some of them do such a fantastic job of like sharing that process. And unlike a magazine article, which is just glossy pictures of like steps mm-hmm. one through five, um, these folks, are you're following along with their process. They show you hiccups. They show you how they overcome. And they're sharing a lot of that more personalized, specialized knowledge, tips and tricks that make that your process go a lot quicker. Yeah. And I've always found, especially on Instagram, if somebody's doing something that you don't know how to do and you've seen them do it on stories or on their reels or whatever, even if they have a huge following, most often you can write them and say, hey, how'd you do that? And they'll either point you to a resource or they'll answer your question. Alex of Old Town Home, he's on. Mm Mm-hmm. Instagram is fantastic for that. Now, don't flood Alex's inbox with questions, <laughs> but he is a wonderful person and answers very technical questions because he's a big old house nerd and he yeah. gets into that stuff. Stacy, same thing. Yep. She's a great resource. I actually have so part of the problem with the internet is obviously there's a glut of information. It's hard to filter some of yes. that. So um on my website, I have a list of resources. There's actually like a resources page, places you might be able to purchase old house hardware. Um None, none of these are really affiliate links anymore. Amazon kicked me out of their affiliate program. So. <laughs> didn't have enough sales. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I didn't sell enough things. <laughs> so yeah, just go check out the resources page on bungalowroots.com. It also lists like blog places you could look. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. A couple of those. I know that is a, a thing that I have found overwhelming when trying to look for information um, because you can find 75 different people mm. shouting 367 different methods to complete whatever your task is. And sorting through that takes a lot of effort. It takes a ton of work. Yeah. And you don't really know the value and like quality of this advice that you're receiving. Yeah. Um, so looking to those folks who have done good jobs and do openly share their work, yeah. they, they're they also usually really great about not only answering your questions, but pointing you to the resources where they got the information. Information, um, or nodding, winking off in the direction of whomever <laughs> taught them. And so it it becomes a natural network to find good quality information. I mean, old house people tend to stick together. We we know what we're in for. <laughs> like yeah. it's a really great community. Like we know, we know you're into it too, and you know, you're gonna you're gonna be there. It's so funny to me, and I will tell this story at some point. I was I have a note in here to tell it. Um when my parents bought an old house when I was a baby. So the first house I lived in, which I don't remember, was actually an old house. Um, They didn't know what the heck they were doing. And they bought a bunch of old house journal magazines or they like, okay. subscribed to it. And at some point, my mom bequeathed to me these old house journals from like the 80s in a so binder. A so I have this huge binder of 1980s articles from old house journal. That was the only resource then. So like we're really lucky. To yeah, have the breadth of the information. searchable information that we have. And I think maybe we take that for granted. But I can't even imagine having to go find something in those because, like, I can't search it. I have to <laughs> pages. <laughs> Remember which edition, like, what oh. month it came out. Um, relatedly to, like, physical copies, several of the folks that are involved in this, like, preservation type work found 
in the 80s, 90s, early 200s that they couldn't find the information that they needed or it was scattered to the winds. And so they actually wrote books oh, yeah. of, of like really good detailed manuals of like what you're looking at, how it got there, what purpose it serves and how to take care of it or how to repair it and rebuild it. Yeah, there's a couple really, really good ones. Like I I can't think of any of them, but I know that I have some <laughs> on the shelf behind either. me. Um, <laughs> like... One of them is called the Window Sash Bible or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a very good one for it, learning. It is one of the nerdiest things I've ever done <laughs> to go to the Amazon and like buy a book about my windows. My 100-year-old windows. I was like, I need I need the manual for these things. I think I have three or four. Yeah. You know, I have a whole shelf of just old house resource books. So some of those are in my um, resources page. There's a link to those. Again, they're no longer affiliate links, but <laughs> <laughs> worth having. And I got to say, when I started looking into this stuff, I like the good millennial that I am. I thought, I don't need a book. I have the internet. The internet has all of the things. And the internet has too damn many things. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's too much. <laughs> yes. And so having this like detailed information readily accessible in my hand when the power goes out, not that it does all the time, that makes it sound like we live in the six. But like knowing that I don't have to search for it, I know I can go to the shelf and find verified good information yeah. that I'm looking for. Chances summer. are if it's published in a book, it's probably relatively good information, at least on old houses. Okay. We'll give us uh, a caveat. Okay. I was <laughs> not I ready there's to there's lots of nonsense that's published in books. Do not take this beyond what we're talking about. <laughs> but building technologies published in books are generally okay. somehow tested. <laughs> I will let the architect speak to that point. But another book that you might, or publication you might want to have a copy of that might be helpful are your local building codes and ordinances. Yeah. Actually, you don't even have to buy them. And I would actually recommend buying the code books. It's expensive. It's like uh, maybe $200. And they're big. And, and like they're boring. big and heavy and a pain to get through. Uh, there are web pages. Like, mm -hmm. So if you go through your local city or even your state, code website usually it'll have a link to the free resource because they cannot require you to, to purchase them right they cannot require you to purchase them they're not necessarily searchable on those free research or free resource ones which is very annoying you have to kind of go by section but that code should be available and i don't know about general building codes i haven't tried it um, but i know like if you have a question about the preservation codes in Tulsa, historic preservation, zoning, overlay, and that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. If I reach out to the planning office, there are staff there that know that code backwards and forwards. Yes. And are super ready to answer all of your questions or point you in the direction of people that can do a better job with it. Yeah. So reaching out to your local permitting office and, yeah. and those folks... <laughs> It, it seems silly, like you generally think about interactions with municipal government as not positive things. <laughs> um, but some of the folks that are in those positions really care and they want you to succeed and they want the best for the city. Uh, yeah. So they can be really great resources for yeah. you. I mean, those code review guys, it's their job to have that code memorized to yeah. review a plan. So they're going to have the answer more likely than not. Now, if you can get a hold of them, that's part of the problem. <laughs> I come it, with questions I can't get a hold of anyone. but <laughs> Well... Speaking specifically to the preservation person oh, well, and Tulsa. Preservation Commission, yeah. They, she's great. She's fantastic. <laughs> I again I don't know about the general permitting folks. I mean, they're they're typically nice. 
it's just hard to get a hold of them. Like you'll leave a message and you might get a call back in a couple of weeks. But again, don't don't call them when you have the problem. Call them before Before, you need the answer. Yes. One more, I guess, informational thing that is good to have or good to know where you can find our workshops. Oh, yeah. Tell me about some of the ones that you attended. Uh, Well, I mean... So, briefly. Jake, do I do anything briefly? <laughs> um, I started – the reason that I do what I do is because of a workshop through our local preservation commission that was offered very early on when we bought our house. Um, so our local Tulsa Preservation Commission brought – used to and still does bring in, but they used to bring in Bob Yap every year to do a window restoration workshop or some kind of preservation workshop. Um, so I got to take a Bob Yap workshop very inexpensively because it was basically subsidized subsidized by state historic preservation credits and i've taken lots so i've taken let's see i took bob's restoration workshop twice window restoration i took his storm window building workshop once Mm -hmm. took passive floor restoration with him and then last summer i actually went to his school in Joplin, not Joplin. Hannibal. Hannibal. Hannibal, Missouri, and took the plaster restoration workshop. And while that was expensive, it was well worth it. And it okay. was super fun. <laughs> so. Uh, and I have taken a couple workshops also through the Tulsa Preservation Commission. Um, I've had folks come in from Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. We talked about historic home painting, and they also did a uh, window preservation. A slightly different lean there. It was more on like a practical preservation yeah. as opposed to a true top to bottom restoration. Um, but it it made this concept that I had researched and looked into and and these things feel approachable because it's comforting to go through those tasks for the first time with somebody looking over your shoulder to yeah. like give you the the pointers and and say hey you are doing a good job let's <laughs> keep going I mean if you can get that hands on workshop experience it is invaluable it is and you know you're trying it on someone else's house probably. <laughs> It's not your own. Absolutely. You know, if you have, if you are lucky enough to have those local resources around you, please look them up. Um, You know, your local preservation office, your state historic preservation office. So SHPO. um, SHPO means? I don't even know what the acronym stands for. It's just state historic preservation is. (laughs) I think it's state historic preservation office. Maybe. That seems way too simple though. But it's something like that. I don't know. I don't even, I just know we call it SHPO. Well, I don't know that I spelled it right there. And there's a couple other, so like Scott Seidler, Crafts and Blog, he, and this is not sponsored. <laughs> he has an online course. So there are a few like online workshop situations. It's not as good because you don't have that like hands-on um, in-person knowledge, but it is a very good permanent resource that you can always refer back to. Yeah. And I will again repeat, not sponsored, but Caitlin has purchased the window course. Yes. From Scott Seidler and uh, has referenced that to me and other clients and has like learned lessons from that material that she's been able to share with other folks. Um, So there are there are some things out there that are super valuable. If I had had the time when I took those first window restoration courses with Bob, because it's been 10 years since I took those. It was a while ago. I've forgotten them, which is why I did. (laughs) I mean, I've forgotten some of the stuff and he had resources like printout resources, but those get lost. And I don't remember things by reading them necessarily. So, like, it's nice to have a video reference sometimes. So, if you do take a workshop, ask if they'll let you take videos. (laughs) 
which is exactly what I did with the plaster restoration workshop so that you can refer back to those later when you've forgotten some of the things that you learned in the workshop. You know, when you finally get around to actually doing the project, you learned how to do in the workshop. Let's talk about some of the actual things you may want to have on hand that will help you do tools yeah tools is one of my favorite things man i love tools so 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 in your most basic homeowner toolbox toolkit what do you think everyone should have I mean, so I think you should have, and I came to, I came to this with some of these tools because my dad is a tool, toolophile. I don't know what you call that. He really loves tools. <laughs> Collector of the tools? <laughs> yes. You will want a good power drill. Solid. A screwdriver. If you can get one that's a ratcheting screwdriver, be real fancy. Okay, listen, when I graduated high school, I was gifted a small toolkit, <laughs> like a Home Depot, probably... $50 toolkit. Yeah. I still have that toolkit. Does it still work? It does still work. There were no power appliances to it. Okay. But it included a ratcheting screwdriver. Oh, okay. And I value that thing so highly, <laughs> I thought I lost it in the move and almost cried. Jake, you can buy another one. But it wasn't the same. <laughs> I have, so a ratchet, I have a bunch of ratcheting screwdrivers, and I have the ones where, like, the end screws off, so you have different bits. So if you need uh-huh. a flathead, you've got uh-huh. it right there on the screwdriver. Well worth it. Just get yourself a ratcheting <laughs> screwdriver. Don't get those other screws. I mean, sometimes a non-ratcheting one is nice. Yeah. You want to, like, it has dig, applications. Dig something out. But a hammer, obviously. Yes. You're going to hang some pictures. You're going to need a hammer. Just get a good, solid, solid, regular, all-purpose hammer. The ones that come in toolkits, this is one of those funny stories. I was given one of those... I think it was like pink when I was in college. Okay. Broke every tool in it (laughs) through college because they were not made for actually being used. (laughs) That is one good thing about the toolkit I was gifted. Like they they have quality toolkit. That's good. They have left it. They have lasted. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, they were great. And a measuring tape, a handsaw. And I actually prefer the Japanese type. To like the like norm like when you think of a handsaw you think of the like triangle shape yep. one with the big wooden handle those are harder because you're actually cutting on the push mm-hmm. and a Japanese saw you're cutting on the pull so it takes it's a little easier to keep the cut straight and have a nicer cut. Um, I have I have both and I do find the Japanese style saw is a lot easier. Um, the blade is also a little more flexible and it's a lot thinner, so you can get a more precise cut. Yeah. Um, and get up closer on edges and things. So overall, I have a tiny little one, which I call my marbles. It's actually made for. I don't even know what it's made for, but it's it's an itty bitty and it has a very thin blade, and I it's the easiest saw to make a straight cut with, and I use it all the time. It's probably the most used saw in my toolkit. Adjustable wrenches. Like a monkey wrench. Some people refer to that as a monkey wrench, but like where you just twist it. So you don't have to have the full like set, set of wrenches. So you can just adjust it to match whatever nope. hex thing you're dealing with. Um, channel locks, which are fantastic. Yeah. It's like basic pliers, but just you can... A channel lock plier is an adjustable plier. So there are there are like needle nose pliers, there are like snub nose pliers. Channel lock you use to like catch around pipes and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can adjust how wide that jaw opens. Yeah. And growing up, my dad was handy. We had a big shop. He had a bunch of tools. We would call out for the channel locks and like they just got used. But I, I never realized how integral of a tool they were until I became a homeowner. Yeah. I have. I, I reach for that more often than not. If I'm doing any kind of plumbing project or anything, like they're so. I have like five of them. 
I also have three or four different sizes. Yeah. We'll oftentimes carry around two different ones at the same time, like while working on different projects. Yeah. Um, but again, solid investment. Yeah. Super worth it. Definitely solid. Definitely worth it. Uh, needle nose pliers, including yeah. a little wide cu- wire cutter. Yeah. Usually it comes with that in there. Needle yeah. nose pliers, they're great to have. Like you've got to fish something out of mm-hmm. somewhere. I mean, yeah. I've used those a lot too. <laughs> Uh, a stud finder? Yes. And again, caveat, sometimes those electric stud finders don't work in an old house because of the laugh. Um, there's a couple other ones like a stud pop where it's magnetic, so it's looking for the nail. Mm-hmm. Those are key too. Um, and related, or I think of stud finder and voltage tester at the same time. Um, generally, those two should be used together. If you're like going to be messing with stuff that's in your <laughs> wall, you should probably make sure you're not hitting any electrical. Yes. Um, a voltage tester, which we did talk about earlier, also a solid thing to have. Safety glasses and work gloves, which I always forget to don. (laughs) You should probably at least have them around. Yeah. But... I mean, like a fire extinguisher. Yeah. Everybody should have one. Yeah. Safety glasses. I When I remember to wear them, I, I'm glad I did. <laughs> Sometimes you need the actual goggles if you're getting really into it. <laughs> I have, I was doing some woodworking like outside. I had moved my table saw outside and I was like cutting some boards and it was a bright sunny day. So I had sunglasses on and I was like, oh man, this is so much easier. I don't have to blink near as much just because the glasses were stopping so much junk from getting into my eyeballs. And I was like, holy shit, this entire time I've been doing all of this work, I've just been bombarding my eyeballs with tiny, sharp bits of wood. I should absolutely be wearing safety goggles. <laughs> yes. I still don't. I know. I, I, still don't. I can't see through them sometimes. I like, they fog up or whatever, <laughs> and I'm just like, I can't I can't do it right now. But at least have them. Yeah. Uh, rubber mallet, which is surprisingly useful. Uh, just, just a little tappy tap. I mean, sometimes it's all you need. Sometimes you want to hit something, but you don't want to break it when you hit it, like yeah. a hammer. Rubber mallet. Pry bar. Definitely. Pry bar. I have beekeepers tools. Which, which are, are like great. Baby pry bars. Those are great for removing trim. Yeah. I actually tried to find some of those at Home Depot the other day because I loved using yours so much. You can't I buy them at Home Depot. You got to buy them. They're special. Like You literally have to like search for beekeeper tool. Find them, folks. They're fantastic. Yeah. They're worth it. Um, And then, I mean, one of the most used tools in my house, again, was that giant wrecking bar pry bar that we got mm-hmm. probably two weeks into homeownership. <laughs> An Allen wrench set, uh, also something yeah. unexpected but super valuable. Yeah. Because any like flat pack furniture is going to come with its own little you don't thing. Have to save all the stupid IKEA. Throw wrenches. them away. Throw them. <laughs> liberate yourself. Yes. Fantastic. And I have specialized hardware, so I actually reset all of the door hardware with little. So the set screw is no longer a normal set screw; it's an Allen wrench set screw. Ooh. So it's easier to adjust and tighten because. Sometimes those flathead screws are real pain yep. in the butt. Uh, and a box cutter was the last one that we yeah. had on that list. Those are some basic tools that yeah. you might need. And chances are, if you're listening to this, you probably have all of those tools. But you might not have all of those tools. That might be a list of tools that you didn't necessarily know yeah. about. So, if Or maybe there's one or two that you never quite thought of or, you know, thinking about how do I spruce up this basic kit. Like me, you are new to homeownership or sorry. <laughs> You're definitely not new. Not new to homeownership. <laughs> but like me, you got a starter kit. At some point in your life, um, it may or may not be pink or green or whatever (laughs) color. Maybe you still have all of those tools. Maybe they have broken because sometimes those are janky. Yeah. Um, But these are 
I would say these tools in this list are ones that are worth spending money on. Yes. That doesn't mean you need the $70 hammer. No. But don't buy the $5 hammer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can tell that my, my husband's parents and my in-laws are not handy people. And they just don't even own tools. I think they had one of those like maybe $15 Sears toolkits. And okay. they wanted me to fix something when I was there last long, long time ago. And I broke every tool in that kit. Yeah, with their like, I Tonka broke toys. the hammer. Like what? It, why? <laughs> like I can't. And it was this tiny little hammer. It's like I can't even nail something into the wall with this. What am I doing? So I wouldn't necessarily recommend the toolkits unless it's quality tools. Yes. Yeah. You know, make sure that they're actually good weight. And sometimes the toolkits have tools you don't need in them. So, mm-hmm. like, sometimes just, just buy the individual tools. Yeah. As you as you get more into projects, you might get a little bolder and mm-hmm. want to expand on that basic list. Um, and some of our favorites are things like a spring nail set, oh, God. which are going to be great when you are resetting trim or when those. Anytime you need, like, anytime you need to set a nail where it's like a hard to reach. So if you like against, like, I've driven nails into things with it. It's just you know you pull it back and it springs mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. sets the nail. I didn't have one for a long time. And and now your life is forever changed. Now I probably need one for every room because I have nails that pop up in the floor and I just <laughs> go get the spring nails out and fix pop, it. Pop. Uh, a glass cutter. Yeah. I did not get one until I started doing window stuff. I was terrified of actually doing the glass cutting. <laughs> uh, and turns out it's super easy. Yeah. And that's one where you'll want to get a good one. Yep. Like make sure you spend a little bit more money on that glass cutter because a bad glass cutter makes cutting glass very difficult. <laughs> But also, if I spend a little bit more money, we mean spend $20. Yeah, they're $25. like $25. Yeah, we're not talking about $80 tools here. <laughs> no, super great. Yeah. A good set of sharp chisels yes. actually is fantastic. Yes, and I just got one. It's been a very long time. And I was like, all right, it's time. <laughs> I need some chisels. <laughs> Indeed. Like, super worth it. End cutter. This is one that people don't really understand. So it's it's a it's a plier-looking thing, but it has these jaws that meet so you could cut oh, things off yeah. at the ends. It's literally Google it. It's an end cutter. It's yeah. what it's called. I use it not for cutting things, but for pulling nails. I wish that you guys could see how many times Caitlin have made tiny little teeth marks with her hands while she went through that spiel. I know. Podcast. <laughs> No um, one can see me. <laughs> okay, so I actually bought a set of these uh, when we were taking the trim out of this house, or taking the uh, shoe moldings off, because I need to go and trim all of those little nails off. But yeah, you can, the heads of them are broad. They look almost like the tail ends of hammers. So yeah. like they, you can bite onto a nail and rock them backwards and pull the nails pull out, the nail out from the back. Yeah. yeah, you can pull it out through the back. It doesn't. Like, it no. doesn't split the face. It splits um, out the back, so. But I, when I was building light fixtures and stuff, we were using that to cut the wires because the cutting edge was so much sharper than the now-dulled <laughs> uh, needle-nose pliers and wire-cutting pliers that I've had. Well, and I mean, years. it's a good thing to have because sometimes you can't get into things with mm-hmm. that. Like, if you want to cut something almost flush, yeah. you can't do it with a regular Worth it. Nipper. Um, Wire strippers, a dedicated tool for that. Yes. Um, Those sometimes have, like, gauges. So if you know the size of the wire, you can just, like, clamp down on it, spin it around a few times, and then slide it off. Yeah. Is a luxury. A box cutter can do the same thing. But, oh, God, it is smooth like butter, and it will make your life so much better. Yeah, box cutters are a pain when you're trying to strip wires. Just if you've got to do any kind of minor electrical work where you need to pull housing off of wires, get some... Get some some of those. Linesman players, same thing. So that's also for electrical work. And it's a 
type of plier that has like teeth that makes gripping onto hard like bending Romex because mm. bending those thicker copper wires is very difficult. So that's what linesman pliers are for. Okay. It's for doing that work. Cool. Um, and making those good connections and clamping it down and getting that good C around those. Sexy. Um, that's voltage tester. Again, it's for electrical work. If you're doing any kind of electric work, get some kind of voltage tester, even if it's just the. See, I would even put that in. I mentioned it in the more basic. Yeah, you did. To, uh, because a voltage tester is great when you're like, why isn't my lamp turning on? Like, is it <laughs> is it a supply issue? Where is that supply issue? Yeah. Is why is my washing machine not running? You know, right. that actually has further applications. Yeah. I but, would say go ahead and buy one. That's yeah, great. You know, but if you don't necessarily think you need one when you get to electric core, definitely get Yeah. Because you want to make sure that circuit is off. Yes. Um, Pipe wrench. If you're yep. doing any kind of plumbing work, you need that extra leverage. And that is a specialized And it thing. also, it yep. grips onto the pipe differently. Right. From like a regular set of pliers. It's, yeah, it's something to do with like, there's some adjustment in it and it has them give. So like, it's loose on once and then you pull and it's tight. We're not engineers, but we appreciate. Really well as a home defense method. <laughs> sure. <laughs> They're big okay. and heavy. And if you feel the need to defend yourself, that would be a good tool to you do. You have so, a tool. <laughs> My brother has a ridiculously huge pipe wrench because he works on like oil rigs. Okay, it's like a the it's a monster. <laughs> the fans of FC Tulsa, our local football club, have a giant oil wrench that they will bring to games and like <laughs> loft it ahead. And I, I mean, it's like a two hand situation. We're yes, talking like heavy. three feet long, <laughs> pumping this up and down. It's which, like a workout, which I think is what my brother has. Craziness. Pipe and cutter. Pipe cutter. Same thing if you're doing any kind of plumbing, you know, the kind that you clamp and spin it around. Mm-hmm. Or if you're doing PVC, you want one that you can saw through. Or I think there's bigger PVC cutters, but. Yeah. I, there's also the, like, clamp style or, like, plier style where you open the thing up wide and you put the pipe in. And then as you squeeze down, a blade just comes through and cuts through like butter. Oh, I have a special one for PEX, which is, like, plastic and has, like, a razor blade in it. Mm-hmm. Same thing, too. Same, same. Yeah. Or similar. If you're cutting any kind of pipe. Get the thing. Get the thing. Do the thing. <laughs> uh, and then uh, that's kind of the where this list ends. As, you, as you're doing the thing, get the thing. So if you need specific tools for specific projects, you'll probably have to expand. Um, if you are doing plaster work or drywall repair, you're going to need the knives and the, the bits and things to like make that smooth and do the proper application, the proper mixing. Right. Trowels and you know, the buckets and yeah. mixers and all of that stuff. So yeah, Each. there's specific project tools as you get into specific projects. Yeah. And as you as you take on more things, as you learn more things, you'll learn about the specific things you need to complete that task. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can build that tool set as you move on and grow and build and, yeah. and do your things. Well, I wouldn't like rush out in a buying frenzy to buy plaster tools unless you're going to do that project. Yeah. So... Uh, and it maybe you start repairing a single window. And so you get the type of glazing points that you can drive in with a putty knife. Yeah. But then you're like, oh, this is really fun. I think I will do all of my windows. <laughs> then maybe it's time to invest in a glazing point driver. Because right. that tool will make the entirety of that project much more enjoyable. That's true. I actually don't like the glazing point driver. I haven't tried them. I borrowed one from a friend when I was doing my windows, but because the panes on my windows are so small, mm-hmm. I could not use it on a lot of them. Gotcha. So, you know, these guys. But there are like 
There are specialized window tools. Like mm-hmm. there's a chisel that has a roller on it that makes removing putty really easy. Yeah. Well worth it. That's if you have to remove any window putty, that is worth it. Because you can like set the depth so you don't hit yeah. the glass. Yeah. Um, um but basically there are you can start simple and probably do a ton of things. And if you find yourself doing more of a specific task, it might be worth investing in the specialized tools and things that make that overall work and project quicker, smoother, or more enjoyable. Yeah. And I mean, some of those tools, they're not expensive tools. You just have to find them, acquire them. Oh, actually, I would say this should go in your basic toolkit. If you have an old house, get a window zipper because that will help you remove the paint. Like, so like if you have a stuck window, you just want to open your window. Okay. You need a window zipper. It's like a, sometimes I call it a sash saw. Um, has this little like heart-shaped saw thing on the end of a handle it just makes breaking that paint line because you know chances are your windows are painted yes absolutely very easy um and they're not expensive no i just had to google it so could have used it that's you i didn't know you didn't have one no i got in there with like a razor blade in my hand oh bless your heart cutting the line get a sash saw (laughs) had i known had you known i mean this is one of the so like in my photo album from 10 years ago, I took a bunch of pictures of the tools from that first window workshop that I did with Bob Yap. And then I like have acquired those tools over time. Nice. Um, and then the last things that you may want to look into are m- more expensive tools. We're talking like the really deluxe things like the infrared paint strippers and the, you know, the super upgraded stuff, which buying is a solid option. But as we've mentioned a few times throughout here, yeah. a lot of those tools can be rented for specific weekends or yeah. projects that you want to tackle on. Um, so look into local equipment rentals. Our big box store even has some of that stuff that we can rent uh, yeah. for time periods. So check out what's available um, for the specific thing that you're you, you're wanting to tackle and see what is potentially at your disposal. There is only one expensive tool. And, and I did this when I wrote this list. I went through my house and went, do I have any really expensive tools that I would say are well worth it? Because I bought lots of tools because, again, I'm my father's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> there is only one tool that I would definitely spend the money on again, 100%, have used it, have gotten the worth out of it. And it's the Speed Heater Cobra. The paint stripper. The paint stripper. The little one. Yeah. I would not buy the big one again if I had the choice. Okay. The big one is good for stripping big areas of paint but the, the cobra can do everything that i need it to do and it's more versatile because you can get into corners and whatever mm-hmm. well worth it um i would say that my ladder is super worth oh, it yeah big so, ladders good ladders i have a it's a a-frame ladder but it also extends so it folds up pretty small it's easy to carry around but i can open it up and it can be like 12 feet high or something. Um, Is it one of the telescoping ones? It's kind of sort of like little giant brand, oh, but okay. different brand. Okay. Um, that was really great. Um, I really appreciate my table saw and my compound sliding miter saw. I have, I've used both of those. I enjoy my air compressor. Um, but a lot of those were Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, those <laughs> types of things. Oh, air compressor. That'd be nice. Yeah. Oh, I have a, I have a small one. I didn't think about that. I have a battery powered nail gun that has been very useful. Great. Um, and they have gotten significantly better since I bought that one. So if you need a nail gun and you don't want to go whole hog and buy a compressor, yeah. those battery powered ones are actually really pretty good. Yeah. I need a compound miter saw. You do need a compound miter saw. 
Everybody yeah. needs a compound miter saw. <laughs> it would have saved me many hours of going, Sad box going against it. With a, yes. <laughs> I have a miter box and a handsaw, and I have gotten away with it. But if I did any kind of trim work or carpentry, yeah. having an actual saw would be really useful. <laughs> so to kind of tie this together, I say so a lot. I probably say um a lot too. Whatever. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> to tie this together, we obviously are both DIY fans. Right. We like it. Uh, we want you to like it. We want you to feel empowered to take on some of your own projects and and make your world and your house your own. Right. Definitely call myself a DIY enabler. Yes. <laughs> but there are there are limits to that. Yeah. Some of those limits, you can tell from the outset, hey, this isn't something I should tackle. Yeah. And some of those lessons have to be a little hard fought, like tiling might seem approachable, but is more of a headache than Caitlin thinks is worth and therefore is not willing to do it again. Yeah. And I mean, some people love tile and would do it again, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I would. In some things like we've talked about this before, floating a ceiling, I did it once, never doing it again. I would not tackle. No. And, you know. You just find the things that work for you and try it out. But heck, if you're one of those people that doesn't want to do any DIY, there is no shame in that. Yeah, totally fair. There is no shame in that at all. If you want to dabble, go for it. There are tons of resources out there to teach you how mm-hmm. and folks to help answer your questions. Um, a wonderful, supportive community that exists to empower you to make that happen. And if you do some learnings and you're like, ooh, I don't think this is going to be for me, that's also okay too. You can duck out at any point in time, but there is a wonderful world out there of DIY projects that you can take on uh, and potentially have a better outcome or save yourself some money or just build pride and ownership in your home that yeah. you exist in every day. Definitely. And you don't have to build your whole house yourself. No. There are people that do it, but <laughs> I would not necessarily recommend it. And I mean, my husband is a great testament to the power of learning to do things yourself. He came from a family that doesn't own any tools, never fixed anything. Yeah. They have a switch that is upside down, has been upside down the entire time. And I swear the next time we go to Maine, I'm fixing it because I'm so tired of it. <laughs> but they just, they don't do that. And now he feels like he can tackle some of these things. He's mm-hmm. so proud of himself when he figures out how to do something on his own now. <laughs> go, Brian! Which is amazing. So he's learned over the years how to do stuff. So Yeah, and you can too. And you can too. The Keeping Room is a production of Bungalow Roots Architecture. I'm Caitlin Parker. You can find me at Bungalow Roots on Instagram, where I'm most active, or on my website at bungalowroots.com. And I'm Jake Landry. Follow along with me at Reluctant House Husband on Instagram or on my website, reluctanthousehusband.com. If you've got questions or comments about the podcast, Caitlin and I would love to hear from you at our email address, thekeepingroompod at gmail.com. Thanks for joining. Until next time.